This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. These uh, guys are going to give us a short presentation each, and then we'll have an opportunity for one or two clarification questions. We won't, in this case, open up to a debate. That will follow later when uh, Bennett will actually um, chair again the session. Um, we're addressing the question, as it says in the programme, how can the c- curriculum respond? But by way of introduction, though, I thought I'd mention um, briefly the work we do in Cambridge ESOL and my own particular interest in the measurable effects of different approaches to learning English around the world, and so outside of this country. In particular, I'm interested in the way that examinations of English language proficiency of the kind that we produce in Cambridge can positively support curriculum in school contexts and can, in fact, help improve teaching and support learning. Now, we in Cambridge currently assess the English proficiency of nearly 4 million learners a year in about 130 countries, so there's a lot of diversity there. And our approach um, supports, I think, the growing need around the world for high-quality qualifications in English as a basic requirement for many people for work and study. Uh, The learning of English in these contexts now forms part of the curriculum for children as young as five years old and upwards. And this is a very wide-scale trend from Chile to China, as it were. And in many of these cases, English is actually the third language that children have to cope with when they go to school. In other words, English is learnt in addition to their home language, a local language or dialect, and in addition to the official language of wider communication in their country or region. So think, for example, of China, where there's a huge amount of language learning going on. Clearly, a a sink-or-swim approach, uh, an immersion approach, is not appropriate in those contexts. And so the needs of these learners needs to be very carefully scaffolded and backed up by a formal curriculum, covering the full range of language skills they need to obtain, and indeed optimised for their different linguistic and cultural backgrounds. And as I said, there's a great deal of diversity. Their individual progression across the proficiency levels must be carefully mapped over many years through primary, middle and high schools and then into further education in the world of work. And we have to bear in mind that uh, learning languages is difficult but very worthwhile and it needs effort over a long period. On leaving formal education, um, it's important for other stakeholders in society, including parents and employers, to know how well the learner is actually able to use language and for what real-world purposes... And certainly in the case of English language learning around the world, it's much more than a classroom activity and is generally taken to be a skill for life and indeed a lifelong endeavour. So not something you do just from um, 5 to 16. Uh, My colleagues and I in Cambridge have carried out a growing number of long-term in-depth research projects, what we call impact studies, tracking the effects of educational reform on the outcomes of language learning, both within classrooms and in society more generally. And in particular, we've been concerned to ensure that our exams and the kind that we offer in in different parts of the world are adapted in such a way that they have positive impact and do indeed lead to improving standards over time. And you can see this in our work, um, which is published on Washback, 
word we heard earlier, impact, and uh, more recently, impact um, action research, working with teachers. My final observation before I hand over to my colleagues is um, that developing a plurilingual competence and a wide range of skills in several languages should indeed be taken as the norm and an accepted part of educational processes, as it is, in fact, in many parts of the world, as I just mentioned. This tends not to be the case, however, where English is the country's official language and the main language of education, as as in this country. Here, it seems to me, there tends to be lower motivation to learn other languages, and the benefits of sustaining, sustaining plurilingualism are not actually widely recognized and supported by society uh, as a whole. And this, uh, this becomes problematic when we start talking about language learning. So that's just one perspective uh, in this incredibly interesting area. And I'm sure my colleagues now will, will pick up some of these points in the rest of the afternoon's discussion. Um, I'd like to start by introducing uh, Dr. Frank Monaghan. He's a, a long-standing member of uh, NALDIC and a uh, deputy chair. NALDIC is the National Association uh, for Language Development in the Curriculum and is the subject association for English as an additional language in this country. Since 2003, Frank has been with the Open University, uh, where he is currently a staff tutor in the London region and senior lecturer in the Centre for Language and Communication. His research interests are in mathematics in multilingual classrooms, educational dialogue, and as a Liverpool football fan, issues of identity and creativity. (laughs) Well, good afternoon. Um, I'm never quite sure whether it's a good idea to come in when you've had the sweetener of the cake to cheer your mood or whether you've now been dragged away from it and are very resentful um, of me being the first person to do that to you. So we have this cartoon here which I decided to begin with uh, because I think it's very important to uh, start with something which reminds us that we have a rather monolithic system in this country and a rather uh, monolingual system in this country. And I'd, I'd like to challenge that, as, as uh, Nick has just been talking about uh, in there. And uh, the, this is a good example of how we assess students at the moment uh, in one particular way that is not necessarily suited to them at all. Um, I'm just going to try and flick through. I only have five minutes, and so I need to be fairly uh, rapid about it. Uh, This is just really to point out to you, these are the the results of the the PISA test on reading uh, by immigrant status, and you you won't be able to read it in any detail. Just to to, to show you that the countries at the top end there um, are Finland, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and we, the United Kingdom, are just around the OECD average on this. Uh, And there are striking differences between whether you're a first-generation immigrant, i.e. you you were born here, or second generation, your parents were born here. Uh, uh, Constant Long has reminded us of the the slipperiness of these categories, so always must be read with with, uh, some some concern. But nonetheless, uh, on these measures, on these comparisons, uh, we are not looking that great compared uh, to others, although we are bouncing around the average uh, for the OECD countries. But what I want to look at is uh, then... What is it that the successful people do? And just to focus on that. And what we have, if we look at this, is that they do have very systematic programs that are based around language that have very explicit standards, very explicit requirements that are there relating to language. 
uh, EAL, that they, the, the, the curriculum is determined at the local level, but that there are very key drivers given. Uh, there are good documents that include language developments within them, that have very clear frameworks set out for language development, and that have progress benchmarks. Uh, they also have very high standards for the programme so that students will acquire the language skills they need in the context of the mainstream curriculum. I think it's very important what we've heard from everybody today, I think, has largely been this focus on the need to make sure that students experience the academic language of the subjects they are learning because, as uh, Paddy Walsh pointed out, that is the literacy, that is the knowledge. It only comes through those subjects uh, so that they are then integrated uh, within, within that programme of um, of the subject knowledge. So how do we do on that? Well, uh, oh, sorry, there's also this time-intensive programme, so that we also, we've heard that the dangers of this, the new uh, proposal, that students will only have three years in which to achieve this, uh, this uh, level of native-like uh, uh, of ability. And we know that this is really not very likely from very substantial research going back over at least the last 30 years. So there are very great concerns about what we have. So on the first one, we don't do very well. We don't have, we don't have systematic programmes. Uh, we do not have a curriculum that's based uh, on, on the local level. We don't include language. In fact, we're rapidly moving away from having any kind of language uh, within, defined within, within our curriculum. If you look at curriculum documents uh, historically, you'll, you can watch the progress of language gradually fade from view uh, uh, as they go through various iterations. And there's every chance that the new ones may do similarly, I'm afraid. Uh, and we don't, uh, I'm afraid, uh, make any effort at all to integrate things within, within the mainstream curriculum uh, in terms of that, because we don't have any AL curriculum. We don't seem to see that there is this progress, as Philida pointed out, very different ways to English acquisition if you're a non-native speaker or a second language speaker. I don't like the term non-native speaker. It doesn't really mean very much to me. But if you're, if you're a second language speaker of English. Uh, and again, we don't, we're moving further and further away from the idea of spending some time on it. Uh, also, then, what else are the features? Well, um, the teachers will have received specialised training, um, either pre-service or in-service training. Uh, there will be postgraduate opportunities for them uh, in the, the area of EAL. We have got rid of this. Uh, we've, we've dismantled our PGC systems. I'm one of the last graduates. Look at my hair. I'm one of the last graduates who got a PGCE in the teaching of English as a second language, and that was in 1983. We are dying fast. Uh, there are some efforts to bring some of this back in at postgraduate level. There are some interesting noises being made, but there is no real progress on this. Uh, and, of course, we've seen with the budget cuts taking place that this is under real threat now because the specialised teachers are rapidly disappearing from our schools, leaving us with an under-professionalised uh, staffing in there. Um, and the opportunities for uh, EAL support teachers to work with mainstream colleagues are also diminishing because they're not there anymore. Quite simply, very hard to collaborate with someone if they've been sacked. Uh, so again, on those two points, we're not doing terribly well. So One minute, Frank. Uh, what do, ooh, right, well, what doesn't work? Well, basically, <laughs> let me tell you, what doesn't work is that would be what we're doing. Uh, it's things that we... Because we're not doing any of the above. So I'm afraid that's the case. So what should we do? We have this one minute. Well, we need to develop a framework... Uh, that has formative assessment at its heart for EAL learners. We have models for this from the Australians uh, with the NLLIA uh, grant scales. We need to have this, we need to make it our own, but we need something that has a specific EAL framework uh, that's there and that is formative, that is teacher-assessed. 
because it has to be done in the context of that. It needs to have a curriculum that is linguistically principled. We need to understand the, long, the, the knowledge and the language that's there, as, uh, as was being said earlier on this morning within Parkview, their attempt to integrate these two things. We need to reprofessionalize uh, our teachers and our teaching assistants. We need to have a PGCE. We need to have CPD and uh, ongoing opportunities for people to learn the skills around language. They don't happen by accident. You need to learn them. And finally, we need to acknowledge, as has been said before, that bilingualism is normal. It's not some perversity that children come in with, uh, insisting they've got this second language. It's on the increase. It's going to carry on being on the increase. Get used to it. Uh, it's normal, right? When it's fostered properly, it adds value both to the individual and to society. Our, our most able uh, achievers are Chinese and Indian students. This is our economic future. What are we doing to support their bilingualism? Uh, they typically outperform the most able white students, by British students, and it needs to be foregrounded. The bilingualism needs to be foregrounded in our schools, not pushed into some corner. Uh, and hidden away as if it were a dirty secret that we're ashamed of. It needs to become the norm for our schools, that we all speak more than one language. And that's it. Thank you very much, Frank. And now I'd like to introduce my old friend, uh, Piet van Avermaet, who teaches multicultural studies at the University of Ghent in Belgium. He's the director of the Centre for Diversity and Learning at the same university, and as a long-standing colleague of ours in the Association of Language Testers in Europe, ALTE, where he plays a leading role in the discussion of language for migration and integration. He also a great de has a great deal of experience in, in the field of supporting the integration of learners in Dutch-speaking environments. So, Pete, your five minutes starting now. <laughs> thank you very much. First of all, I'd like to thank Cambridge Assessment for having invited me and to share some of the ideas uh, that we're working on, uh, mainly in, in Flanders. But at the same time, I'd like to apologize for the fact that I will not be able to focus on the specific British context because I'm not really familiar with it, nor with the issues uh, concerning uh, curricula. Um, so when I speak um, about we, I'm not referring to you as UK teachers, but I'm referring to the Flemish context. Um, first thing I'd like to address is, and I think this is, in my view, fundamental in what we do in, in education, the way we look at teaching, the way we look at learning. Our fundamental thinking on diversity denies diversity as a starting point. Rather, it starts from a binary way of thinking in which one part of the binary is considered as legitimate, the legitimate norm, the non-negotiable norm, and the other as the, div uh, the deviant or the deficient one. So, so a socially constructed, hierarchical relationship. And if I have time, I'd like to focus that on the basis of that statement on three issues. One, on language, language education, on plurilingual repertoires, and at the end, on assessment. But referring to what you said, Frank, um, with the PISA data, for those who've seen the Belgian data, we were, I think, ranked six or something like that. Let me be open on Belgium. Belgium scores very well on PISA. But if we look at the low achievers and the high achievers, the, when, when I only look at the Flemish data, the gap between the low achievers and the high achievers is the largest, the largest of all regions or countries involved. So we always have to look at the possible gap between low achievers and high achievers. And that brings me to this first point. What do we see in Flemish schools? The teaching of, in this case, Dutch as an additional language is seen as 
a, a language deficit. Children have a deficit, um, and that's why the most of the practice is pull-out classes. Now, we know that pull-out classes, on the basis of research, pull-out classes have no effect on language learning as, uh, as, uh, as such. Um, the, 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 the consequence of looking at um, making that distinction between the normal child who is monolingual and then children who speak another language from a deficiency perspective is that we often observe these children as being poor, being weak, and this impacts implicitly, this and unconsciously, this impacts our teacher behavior. Just to give you one example of a PhD student who did a research, and I make immediately a switch to this one, um, who did, a, who did an, uh, a study on um, interaction patterns in primary education. She, ob she observed um, lessons of 100 minutes, teachers who were much, very much devoted to multiculturalism, multilingualism, etc. But what she saw was, and one of the things she did was she ticked and uh, after the names of the different children, she takes the, the, the frequency of interaction between the teacher and the children. Some of the children, some of the children particip participated more than 100 times in the interaction in these 100 minutes. Other children, nil. Nil. These children don't learn. They don't learn. They don't learn a language. They don't learn the subject or whatsoever. The teachers were not aware of the fact that they give more turns to some children than to others. And I think this is a very important point to take into account. And it goes back to a large extent to the way we perceive, to the way, the way we see these children, whether they come in as being poor, weak, having a deficiency. And I think this is an, 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 a shift that in, in our thinking, in our attitude as schools and as teachers that have to be taken into account. We know that socioeconomic background is a key feature um, when it comes to academic achievement. We've been able to, um, uh, to have two uh, kind of intermediate variables. And what we see is that the impact of the socioeconomic composition, and here there I would like to support, um, where is she? The research that... Uh, um, that Sally had, yeah. Um, what we see is that when the teachability culture is low in schools, it impacts the futility and the sense of futility in chil of children, and that impacts their academic, uh, academic achievement. So we definitely can make a change as um, a school. Plurilingualism, what do we observe? And again, here I'm speaking about the Flemish context. Just, just to give you uh, a couple of examples of uh, how we in Flanders deal with plurilingualism. In a majority of the Flemish schools, in the school regulations, there, it is said that the only language which is allowed to be used in the school is standard Dutch. There are practices where children are punished when they speak another language in the corridors or in the playground. There is even one example of a school I know of where at the end of the school day, the, uh, um, one of the teachers go, uh, goes at, at the school gate where the parents are waiting with a green and a red glove on. When the, parent, when the parents speak Dutch, the migrant's parents, one minute, speak Dutch to each other, the, the green glove goes like that. When they speak their mother tongue, the red glove goes like that. <laughs> this is the reality. So I fully support what you said. What I think is... And I'm not talking about bilingual education. I'm not talking about the teaching of the mother tongues of migrant children because we have to be aware of the fact that we are talking about super diverse contexts. And it, was, it has been said before the break, in some cases, this is also the case in Flanders, where teachers are confronted with 15, 20 different languages. But 
What we can do, and this is what we are now experimenting in some schools in the city of Ghent, we are using the plurilingual, in mainstream classes, using the plurilingual repertoires as didactical capital for learning. So not allowing the use of the language, but really promoting it, exploiting it in the learning processes seems to be very uh, powerful. And then testing. Um, Flanders doesn't have a tradition of centralized testing, which you have um, more in the UK, but we have to be aware of the fact that Tests are, although they strive for objectivity, they are never objective. It are people who have developed these tests, and we have to be aware of the fact that reference frames of those people who develop the, uh, these tests are always involved in the development. So um, we, what I would like to advocate for, and this, is ha this has been said uh, a couple of times before the break as well, we have to broaden our assessment procedures in, uh, in the schools. Not only at the end of um, uh, a process uh, we should assess, but also um, uh, during the process. What children can do instead of what they can't, we have to map their, de uh, their development. We have to capture their individ individual learning paces because we tend to forget that learning processes, language learning processes, are whimsical and are individually different. And I think this is important to take into account. And it, it, we, we have to try to, to integrate our assessment procedures in the learning and the teaching processes. And uh, on top of that, students who are actively involved has to be much more actively involved in the development and the performance <coughs> of the tests. And I'll stop here. Thank you. Well, then, thank you very much, Keith. And to our third speaker, uh, Tim Chadwick who has worked in education in a wide variety of countries and contexts over the last 18 years, including as a high school teacher in Bulgaria. Uh, he was a senior trainer and manager on a large education project in the Middle East, where almost overnight the language of uh, delivery for state school maths and science changed from Arabic to English. More recently, he was commissioned by the University of Cambridge International Examinations in cooperation with... Uh, Cambridge University Press, to write a practical guide for schools on how to support both content <laughs> and language learning in the classroom. So, Tim, over to you for your... And I'm OK here? Uh, I can be heard from it? OK, thank you. Uh, being last, I find that most people have stolen my ideas. Uh, so this will seem like maybe uh, a rehash of some of what you've heard. Uh, yes, the vast majority of my experience in this field comes from overseas. I spent 18 years working outside the UK... Um, what I will talk about is, is, is um, the role of the subject teacher in supporting language, not, not only the EAL um, focus. And my focus comes from, from, from secondary. Uh, we've seen clear examples of excellent EAL support for children with very different language needs. Um, I live in southwest London and did some research into schools there. Uh, there are EAL classes that fully support the curriculum throughout the rest of the school. Uh, the employment of language assistants that have some first language of many of the students. One school had Polish, Arabic, Spanish-speaking assistants, for example. And some schools also offer language classes to, to parents to help them. I think Lee mentioned something like that earlier as well, to help them better engage with the school life of their child. Um, a problem seems to arise, however, and this is backed up by a report that, that I can give you a quote for later. A problem arises when students are judged um, to be advanced in English and EAL support um, is uh, either not provided in the case of new arrivals to the school or removed in the case of students 
who are seen to have progressed enough because of EAL support. Firstly, here we have an issue of assessment. What is enough? Assessment is the topic of a whole other debate. And so all I would like to say is that language support should not be removed at any stage of a child's education, no matter if English is their first language or an additional language, and that would go right through university. Um, we do have the slide, so you've kind of seen this before. Uh, from this diagram, you can see that language can be usefully divided. I have it in three types. Jim Cummings has it as, as two. BICS is the social language of the child. We have classroom language, the kind of routines of the teacher. And we have the CLIL, which is the academic language. Um, children will pick up their social language um, very quickly, especially in the age of Facebook. Uh, classroom language, such as putting students into groups, taking the register, and so on, is so repetitive that it's soon acquired. The academic language, however, as we've heard from other speakers today, is very much another matter completely. This is language we, uh, that we expect students to engage with and use to demonstrate understanding, but they will also come across this language only really at school. And so who will provide this language in a meaningful way? It's worth noting that typically a student's level of BICS will be high in comparison to their level of KELP, the social, in comparison to the academic. If we go back to the question, what is enough, there is the inherent risk that if a child is assessed and deemed to be advanced when tested through BICS rather than through KELP, it may be inappropriate to withdraw explicit EAL support. We have all met children who seem to be extremely fluent when talking to us about the weekend, their hobbies, and so on. And then we take in that essay, and it seems like the work of another individual. We may then assume the child to be lazy or to lack aptitude, but it's also possible that they have received inadequate support with academic language, and I'm talking about in the subject classroom. I was unfortunate enough to attend a terrible high school. It has since been knocked down and has become a housing estate, I have not met anybody who regrets this. I am probably alone. I'm next to a doctor and a professor. I'm probably alone in that I hold a CSE grade 3 in chemistry. This is not a good result. Um, I was not a lazy child, and I believe I had enough intelligence to pass at O-level. But chemistry was a foreign language to me. From all the work I have done in this field, I can only conclude that this was not my fault at all, and that all the responsibility for my failure really did boil down to Mr. Meller my teacher. <laughs> he in no way supported us, and this is a serious point, he in no way supported us as children with the language of chemistry. Obviously chemistry involves very specialised language, and so where else were we supposed to get this language from, if not from him? We had no language two speakers in our class, by the way. But Mr Miller was far from alone and remains far from alone. Many subject teachers are not aware of how to support their students with language and how to scaffold tasks within their lessons regarding both procedure and language. Many have received too little training or no training in this area. I myself went through school at a time where English grammar wasn't taught and there was certainly no Latin in Macclesfield. Yet in French class we were supposed to know what our teacher meant when they spoke about the infinitive or the subjunctive. I'm sure I'm not alone in experiencing this and that, in fact, there is a whole generation of practising teachers, including subject teachers, uh, so I, I mean more specifically subject teachers, excuse me, uh, who do not know necessarily a great deal about the English language. And I'm sure there are some poor French speakers amongst us too. Um, there is great variation then in how well-prepared subject teachers are um, to support their students with academic language. And so clearly, as Dr Frank said, um, um, this becomes an issue of training. Content teachers need to be aware, for example, of the four skills of language and the demands these place on students. 
Those skills are the productive skills of writing and speaking, the receptive skills of listening and reading. Right now I am speaking. I hope that some of you are listening, but this is actually bad teaching practice. I am not checking your understanding. There are no true-false questions. There are no concept questions. Um, and all these techniques we know count as language support. If we go back to my chemistry, let's imagine that we want our students to conduct an experiment and provide us with a detailed laboratory report at the end. The language demands on the students who will be speaking and writing. In this case, in my opinion, um, it will be good practice to provide the students with a handout that contains sentence stems. Now, I wonder if Lee agrees with me here. We, we might talk about that. Um, so, for example, if, if we want the students to make a hypothesis or a prediction before the experiment starts, then within the handout would be some language. In this case, it would be a first conditional. It doesn't matter if we don't know what a first conditional is, but it would be, we think that if we add X to, to Y, Z will occur. Uh, supporting students in this way helps students who are weaker at language. It supports the teacher's instructions in terms of what they want the students to do. It keeps students on task. It makes them feel like real investigative scientists. It means they leave the room with something. It's surprising how often students leave classrooms actually with nothing with them. Um, this is one very simple example of academic language support. I do not have time for more, and I'm speaking as quickly as I can. <laughs> Many content teachers need support in giving explicit language support in their lessons to both native and non-native speakers of English. I don't see a distinction necessarily, such as pre-teaching vocabulary, in designing handouts, in helping students speak, and generally engage more effectively with the content. They also need support in helping their students demonstrate their understanding of the content. Uh, content, excuse me. So where can this support from come from? Uh, I mentioned the book already. Um, but I also personally believe, and I speak only for myself here, um, but I think this echoes what Frank says, you can correct me, that uh, PGCEs, the GTT, the B.Ed., um, well, I think it should contain something along the lines of a, a CELTA course, the kind of course that Cambridge ESEL offer, a certificate in teaching English to adults to see how English is taught as a second language. There's also a CELT-YL course, which is specifically for young learners. Um, this provides a window on how English is taught as a second language outside the UK, and I think it has serious ramifications for how we deal with language here within the UK. There are so many more issues to raise. I haven't touched on the curriculum really. Um, what is geography to a child from Sudan compared to a child born here? What is the story of Gordon of Khartoum to the same child? How accessible is our curriculum really? How is it that in some schools, EAL-assisted ch children outperform students for whom English is a first language? Are students who migrate to this country more driven to succeed? That's a point that's been made already. Whatever the answers to the issues that I've raised... Um, language, particularly academic language, is the core competency, in my opinion, for everything our students do. Thank you. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.